I just got a text from Pastor John Nicholas. It is uh, 84 degrees in Southern California, and, and uh, he was drinking uh, slushy. So he said to say hi to everybody. Uh, he was at, at 7-Eleven picking up his second slushy of the day. He said he's wearing flip-flops, which uh, is interesting. So keep him in your prayers. He's really suffering in California right now. So we are in the book of First of John. Um, we, uh, the, the way that we started the, the second chapter was um, Pastor John Nicholas last week covered uh, verses 1 and 2, and we'll pick up and cover verses 3 through 6. Um, so we'll go back and overlap a little bit of, of, where, of where John was as well. Um, so from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 from First John last week, Pastor John Nicholas noted three things that have great effect on our lives as Christ followers. Um, he said, first, that because of the holy nature of God, we should seek to imitate him and walk in the light. So holiness is an um, is, um, interesting concept. Really, at its core, holiness just means that God is completely different than we are. Um, he is holy. We are not holy. Um, in him, there is no darkness, and in, in him, there is no sin, because sin is really measured by being counter to the very nature of God. His love is perfect. It's vastly different from the Hallmark Channel specials, and he's holy. And so for us as believers, we should then seek to imitate Christ, who bore the fullness of God in man. And so we should seek to be like him. And that was... John's first point. Next, if we sin and stumble, or perhaps when we sin and stumble, we have an advocate in Jesus, our helper. And that's a huge, that's a huge point. And that's a huge point that John is going after in this first letter of John, is that we want to go after holiness. We, we should have a desire inside of us that wants to be imitators of Christ, who wants to bear out elements of God's character in us, um, who wants to reflect the loving nature of God to the people around us, but that sometimes falls short of that. Maybe you're laughing in the back of your mind thinking, oh, I often uh, fall short of that. And so the important point that John is making is that we have a helper, we have an advocate in Christ, which should be completely encouraging. Um, it's like, um, I think I've seen television shows before where people are learning to be a tightrope walker. I, I can't imagine that, right? Like, I actually can't imagine someone being a tightrope walker and not having a net. It doesn't make any sense to me, you know, I think... I don't think they really do this very much, but, you know, they used to do, be, make big spectacles of people who were definitely going to die in the 90s, and it would be a TV show, right? They'd run a wire in a valley between two mountains, and everybody would tune in to watch this guy in you know, ninja socks walk across some valley with no net. Um, I watched a show on Netflix the other day that was about a, a, this guy who's a mountain climber, and uh, he does it without ropes, which just seems like such a terrible, terrible idea. Um, but for the believer in Christ, that's not what we have. And so we can be more bold 
about what we do because we know we have an advocate. We know we have a helper. We know that our our payment for sin is made in Christ. And so we can make even bolder attempts at holiness. Um, we don't have to make the safe bets. We can make bold bets. We can put ourselves out there sometimes, and that can bring more glory to God. Maybe, maybe you've had an opportunity to kind of put yourself out there before. Um, human relationships give us a lot of opportunity for that when we try to restore those relationships. And sometimes we eat a little crow, whether it's due to us or not, because of the surpassing worth of God, we want people to see him in us. The third point was that Jesus atoned for our sins and restores, actively restores our relationship to the Godhead. Um, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the light. Um, and so we rely on him for that connection. So knowing those things should truly give us a great confidence. Because otherwise, if it weren't for Christ, we would have to look at our works. Scripture reveals that our works are like filthy rags. Anything that we do in and of ourselves is tainted with sin. It's, it's not pure. It's not holy. And so to try to think that we can build a pile of works that are good enough that we can somehow reach God actually minimizes God and it maximizes us. And the scriptures teach that um, salvation is not of ourselves because if it was, we could boast. We could separate ourselves. We could be different from the rest of the world. We could be better because we figured it out. We found the path to God, but that's not who we are as believers. And we should actively work to not communicate that as well. Um, it's not that we're better than the watching world around us. It's, in fact, that we realize that we're so far from God, and it is so impossible for us to, of ourselves, even be an imitator of him, that we need the man Christ Jesus to help us be repentant. This morning in, in Sunday school, Jim said, if I was going to Washington, D.C., and I got on, forgive me, geographically, I'm a moron. I, I know one way between home and work, and I don't actually go to work anymore, but um, generally, I know one way to get to a place, and my family will often accuse me of taking the scenic route places, because they're all about shaving off two seconds from the drive, and you're awful if you don't shave those seconds off. <laughs> Big Mama knows the fast way to get there. But if you find yourself going the wrong way on the freeway, you're not repentant when you realize you're going the wrong way. You're repentant when you make that change and you turn around. That's why repentance is described as a 180. It's a 180 because a 360 would put you back in the same direction. So you're making a 180, and your 180 is from trusting yourself to make all of your life choices. When you were not a believer, if you are a believer this morning, um, you didn't make a life choice and think, I wonder how this reflects on God. Or I wonder where God stands on this issue. You said no care for those things. In fact, you would laugh at people that would even speak in those ways. But as a believer, in the decision-making process, prayer is part of that, right? We should have a patterned lifestyle of prayer anyway. And so we start off our day like Jesus started off his day. When the disciples could never find him, Jesus wasn't playing hide-and-seek. He was going off somewhere to remove himself from distractions and to spend purposeful time with the Father, especially when the stakes were going to be high. Jesus would be off on a mountain somewhere. 
And so in our study today, we're going to move through things with John as he writes against this idea of Gnosticism. We're going to move through things that have significant impact on our lives. And they give us a vision for something called abiding that you used to hear a lot about. Abiding really is spending time in Christ, spending time in prayer, spending time in devotion. All of these kinds of things that are, in a sense, sometimes discipline, because discipline stops us from drifting, right? And, and maybe you've experienced drift before. If you're driving down the road, the thing that you look at is what you tend to go towards, right? Um, so if you're looking at the headlights of oncoming traffic, that could be problematic, right? Um, and everybody has these new headlights that they like to install in their vehicles that help you see the reflection of your cornea inside the back of your skull, right? And so you get to look at the white line on the side of the road and just hope there's nothing else in the way. And at least you stay pinned to that line. Our devotional life can be the same way. When we don't have it, we're bouncing all over the place, right? Like when you go bowling and you, you see the little kids' bumpers, right? Like the kids always win, right? Because they can't fail. It just bounces from side to side. That could be us when we aren't spending time in the Word, when we aren't remembering who the person of Christ is, when we aren't running into those instances in Scripture where he says, you know, give him your coat and go a mile further. And then I go out and someone frustrates me. And I react of myself, not of Christ. So John gives us encouragement to follow after Jesus' very teachings. And we, we have to be diligent to understand what he's saying when he talks about the commandments, because our mind can go to grandma's banner of the Ten Commandments in the living room, right? Or the footsteps photo. You know, everybody had the footsteps photo, right? Where Jesus was carrying you down the beach. Piggyback or baby cradle, you decide. So let's read the whole section, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll circle back to verses 3 through 6, where we're really going to be this morning. So 1 John chapter 2 starts like this. My ch little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John makes a bit of a sandwich here that really is to drive us to this concept of what Paul would call imitating Christ, being an imitator of Christ, desiring to reflect the very character and nature that Jesus carried about as he walked in the world. And Jesus is such an interesting case study, the God-man in him, the fullness of deity dwelled. And so you get to see how would the character of God interact with a sinful, fallen, broken world. You see that in Christ. And so the Apostle John writes about these things. 
the holy nature of God that we desire to imitate so that we would not be found in patterned, open, continuous sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7 reads like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this doesn't mean that we're sinless. It talks about enslavement to sin. We're not sin's victim. James talks about sin and and how it comes to be, how it comes to be realized. And I'm sure, I know, if you're a believer and you've tried to do some battle with sin, you felt it come on and you felt yourself give into it and you felt yourself allow it to occur. Um, If you do any exercise of of fasting, um, fasting and prayer, not fasting for health or dietary reasons, but for spiritual reasons, Um, If you determine to take on a period of fasting, uh, one of the things that I find is if I get in my car, I can quickly find out those areas in my life that need more of the love of Christ. Because for whatever reason, I become very frustrated in the car with the people around me who don't know how to drive. Like people in Pennsylvania who think you should stop for a yield sign to get on a freeway when there's an entire lane that's designed to get up to speed with traffic, and it drives me insane. But then at the same time, who am I, right? I'm just a wretch, sinful man that I am. The psalmist in chapter 119 and verse 32 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. As a believer, maybe you've felt that before. And maybe you sit here as a believer right now and you think, oh, my heart's not feeling very enlarged. Right? Maybe you're kind of ho-humming through life. Maybe you're in a season where you're just feeling frustrated and you're just not feeling it. Jesus teaches us to follow in his commandments. Jesus tells us to feel it, which is great because when you wallow in self-pity, you don't wallow your way out of pity. You wallow your way further and further and further. Um, And so realizing you're not a victim to sin, you're not a victim of this world. In fact, what you are is a conqueror. More than a conqueror, you have Jesus as your advocate. And so when we take that kingdom perspective, it doesn't mean the things of this world and this life get fixed. Maybe they still stay rough. But my goodness, are we going to let our very countenance be shaped by a world where sin runs rampant? If so, we'll be crushed. We'll have no real relationship with Christ, and it'll be very easy to rob it from us. And in the same time, we won't be following after Jesus' commands. And that will be troublesome, as we'll see as we continue through John's letter. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. John keeps us reminded that if anyone does sin, and that's like, you know, one of those rhetorical kinds of statements, if anyone does sin, Jesus is the one who is sin's payment. And and that's important because he's talking to these little children. He's talking to believers. 
And so he's encouraging people who are believers. He's encouraging people for whom Christ is already the advocate. That when you fail, when you stumble, he's still your advocate. It's constant. It's continuous. It's not as though he says, oh my gosh, you, you were saved. You, you walked the aisle. You came forward. You prayed the prayer with those very specific words that save people. Why did you sin again? Jesus is the one who is our payment, not some work that we've done, not some work that we continue to do. Jesus is our propitious offering, that offering that comes from without, outside of ourselves, not something that we've done. And that's an offering that's for the sum of our days. And, and this is the truth that makes us conquerors, is that Jesus is the one who makes payment for our shortcomings and our sin. Not our works, not our sinless life before God. And this is the point that John is making. So we come to verse 3 where, where we start in our study. And John says this, continuing on the first verses, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So, John is not being creative here. He is not bringing to bear new concepts. In fact, he's pointing back to scriptural concepts. He's pointing back to the very things that Jesus would teach. Um, Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I, I think it's interesting that when you come to books like this in James and you read, you know, people take a couple of... James, excuse me, First uh, John, people take a couple of different perspectives here. And somewhere in the middle, oftentimes, is the truth. Um, people come to this and they see license to sin. They see that Jesus is our offering. So I come forward, I pray the prayer, and then I go and I live my life, and Jesus is my continual payment. Other people come to this and they see Jesus saying, follow my commands, and they think, okay, in order to be saved, I need to perfectly follow the commands. And neither of those things is being said. What Jesus gives them is not a way to be saved. What he gives them is a litmus test for their faith, that they can check up on themselves and see where they are and how they're doing. It pulls them back from drift sometimes. Sometimes it, it gives them, maybe they're not drifting, but it gives them the continual path to walk on in following Jesus' commandments. And, and guess what? Jesus' commandments actually exist. It's not some notional concept that you make up. They're documented. And so frequently when people talk about God or people talk about Jesus, it starts from a place of create, like where creative writers start. You hear people talk about God and they say, well, well I think that. You don't have to think. You, you don't have to create this. You don't have to make this up. Jesus was a real person. God is real. He has commandments that he has taught. He has a whole life that he has lived, and it's all written for you in a context of a very knowable time frame. You can understand the kinds of things that were going on. And so when we read that we should follow his commandments, one thing that should be very important to us is thinking, I really want to know what are his commandments. I really want to know what has he commanded. Because Jesus just asked a question that, while rhetorical, is real. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That makes a lot of sense. You wouldn't go to work and look at someone and call them your boss 
or your manager or however you talk about that where you work, and they say, hey, listen, um, tomorrow before the end of the day, I want you to do this thing. And then you look at them and say, no, I'm, I'm going to do some other things tomorrow. In fact, I'm not going to come in and I'm not going to do any work. I'm, I'm going to go play golf. Or I'm going to actually do the opposite of what you've just asked me to do. Even though it's unproductive and goes against what this company needs to be done right now, that's what I'm going to do. Then your boss is going to say, so you're fired. Because you're not functioning as an employee. I'm not, you're not allowing me to act as your boss, and so you're out of here. And so Jesus asked the question, why do you call me that, but not do what I say? Um, and this was all part of a, a, of a controversy in the modern church, if you will, uh, called lordship salvation, right? Where there were people that would have said, um, you become saved, and now you're forgiven, and you just kind of go do whatever you want, right? You can even try on some Jesus, see if he fits, right? Like a pair of pants, leave the tag on, just in case, and continue about your life. But the lordship salvation position would say, you become saved, Right? You align to Christ, and then you follow him as your Lord. It's actually very biblical. We just read Jesus saying for himself that truth. And so John is really drawing on this concept that Jesus taught, which is that as believers, we should follow his commands. And it makes sense if you don't start with a hat on of legalism or a hat on of license. And you come to this text and just say not, hey, there's something that I already believe and let me see how it fits into what was just said. But you come to this text and you say, what is God telling me? Right? That's how we should approach this. The conclusion, if God is love, if God is fair, if God is the moral agent, if God is good, the conclusion shouldn't matter. We should trust him with it. And he has all over scripture documented his faithfulness and his goodness. God is not a man that he should lie, that he should recant of his position. He's fair, he's just, he's loving. He's the re reason we even have a concept of morality, right? The reason that I can't go over to my neighbor's house and shoot them when they're loud is because they're a creature of creation. They're special. It's not just a squirrel that I can shoot. Right? It's a person. With a, with a soul, an ensouled being that will live on forever, and God loves them and cares for them. So we should come to this word and say, God, what have you said to be true? Because that's what I want to recognize, and that's what I want to know. And that's what repentance looks like. That's what repentance feels like. That's what it looks like in practice. Because again, if I say I'm going to Washington, D.C., and I drive south, north, instead of south, I need to repent of that decision and get going in the right direction. Because guess what? I won't get there. I mean, I guess you could if you could go through the South Pole, come up Antarctica, come at the back. I mean, you could circle the globe and get there. So that example breaks down. But without true repentance, without saying, I no longer trust me to make decisions. I now trust Christ completely. I've got my back to myself, and I'm just looking at Christ saying, you tell me. Not Jesus, take the wheel. But Jesus, tell me, and I'll just I'll keep my hands on here, and you tell me which way to turn. Some people like a guy named Dave Ramsey. Um, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard of him. Because churches like Dave Ramsey, uh, because he tells people to give to the church. 
And he helps them have more money to give. I mean, I like Dave Ramsey. I think he's got great concepts, right? Um, we should not live mired in debt and make decisions that leave us indebted. And so if I came to you and I said, you know what? I follow the principles of Dave Ramsey. And you said, oh, okay, cool. And then we hung out for an afternoon and we went to Bass Pro Shop. And I got one of those things that I'm not sure how anybody is able to own. You know, like they're not a, quite a four-wheeler. They're not quite a golf cart. They're somewhere in the middle. And I think they start at about $50,000, right? They're called gators or these kinds of things that I wish I lived a life that I could have these things. I don't understand how anyone does. You know, so you go over to people's house and they'll have like seven gators driving around. How do you justify this, man? Like you've got so much money in toys. I'm like trying to afford bread in this economy and you're buying toys. And so you go with me to Bass Pro and I buy a, a few cool shotguns and I lay down my credit card. And you're like, dude, I thought you followed Dave Ramsey. Yeah, but you know, I'm splurging. Today's a special day. And I go pick up a gator, right? And then we go out to eat and I lay down the Amex. You say, dude, I thought you followed Ramsey. Yeah, but I'm getting airline miles. And then we go somewhere and we, we buy some clothes. I buy you not even, not even like, I'm not even talking like Kohl's or, or Old Navy. You know, we go buy fancy clothes. We go to Sears, right? I buy you pants and shirts. I'm like, you need to look good because we're going to go out to eat, right? We're going we're gonna to go have a fancy meal tonight, right? So we go to TGI Fridays. We get a drink with an umbrella in it. And the, the, the wait staff comes by and I throw down my credit card. And I tip them $1,000, right? At the end of the day, and I say, I follow Dave Ramsey. You're going to say, you're a buffoon. You don't follow Dave Ramsey. You spent like $10,000 today. You literally bought a golf cart four-wheeler thing, right? You bought like a couple of guns. You did it all at Amex. You tipped him $1,000 just because you wanted to look cool. You don't follow Dave Ramsey. How is that any different than Christ, right? I tell you I'm a follower of Christ, and we go out, and I'm cursing at people, Right? We walk down the road and somebody comes up and they ask me, hey, can I use your cell phone? I'm down and out, man. I just need to get a ride. And I say, sex be you, buddy. Be warm and be fed. I am not living out Christ's commandments. Wouldn't it be fair to ask me, are you in Christ? You don't do what Jesus told you to do. You don't, you don't, even, you don't even want to. It's not that you're not doing it perfectly because none of us are. Right? Like, if you come to me and you say, I'm perfectly living out Christ's life, I'm not even going to inspect your fruit. I'm just going to say, you don't know Christ enough. Right? We need to sit and talk, and we need to spend some time, and we need to study Jesus together, man. Because I would love to say that I am perfectly living out Christ's walk, but I know I'm not. He's the God-man. I, I lean on Him, not because I'm His equivalent, because I'm His servant, And so, it certainly wouldn't seem that I believed that Dave's way could help me with money if I was living like that. Could I then proclaim to believe that I have repented of not trusting myself and now I trust Christ when I make no effort whatsoever to live as he's told me? Why does that make sense with Dave Ramsey but not with Jesus? What is it about us that constantly wants to find some other way? Right? Some other way. God coming straight to Adam in the garden. And Adam tries to make an excuse for God and blame God. 
right? It's not new, right? Whose fault is it? It's that woman that you gave me, God. So ultimately, it's not even her fault. God, it's your fault. You gave her to me. And then she came in here and she told me to do that. See, but, but Adam, I told you something different. I said, don't do this. And you guys knew it. And a serpent that doesn't even crawl came up and said, I was withholding something from you and you went that direction? And so that's what's in us. That's the original sin that's in us, right? It's like uh, if you've ever had chicken pox, the shingles virus is in you. That's sin. Sin nature is in us. And so we have to be cautious by the way that we see the world around us. We have to be cautious by our initial reaction to things. We should want to temper that and say, how have I seen Jesus react in this situation? Where's an opportunity for me to decrease so that he can increase? Where's an opportunity where I can die to myself and live for Christ? That's what following in his commandments looks like. It's not the Ten Commandments, though there's probably elements still in morality that are in the Ten Commandments that were part of Christ's teaching and life. He's saying, follow after me. I fulfilled every jot and every tittle perfectly. I said, it is finished. Now follow what I taught that was for my church. And we say, but I think there's another way. Constantly looking for some reason that we can live outside of his commandments. Two verses ago, we were encouraged by John that if we fail, Jesus is the fullness of our offering. But for some reason, if we're honest with ourselves, we want the holiness of God. We want our deeds. We want those to be the things that save us. And, and we're, we're reminded if, if, if we rely on the circumcision, if we rely on the, the law, you better keep all of it, right? So if you say, I'm going to live by the law, and, and that is my right standing before God, Scripture tells you that you better fulfill it all perfectly. And it tells you that because you can't. Just like the hot stove, right? Mom and dad told you when you were a chubby little toddler, don't touch that stove, it's hot. And because you were a chubby little toddler, you waited until they weren't looking and you showed them. And suddenly you said, oh, hot. Yeah, got it. James chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh, and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. Strength under control is meekness. So as I humble myself, I turn my back on trusting myself, I proclaim Jesus as Lord, that's wisdom. I, that, that's the only thing that, that could make me wise. Now you could look at me and say, John, you're very wise. It could only be because I've trusted the word 
not because there's like something in me that is particularly wise. The only thing that's in me is sin. And we have to realize that about ourselves. That's a very healthy understanding of ourselves. So John in verse 3 is taking Jesus' own words about Jesus' commandments. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But we don't want to. Matthew 28, 20, I'm teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Or John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So Jesus gives us the secret to life. The secret to the Christian life is abiding in Him and following His commandments. That's our job. There's other things that we do along the way that are part of His commandments. We participate in discipleship. We have a particular love inside the church, one for another. That is a witness to a watching world who we should desire to evangelize, to share about Christ. Some of us are very quick to share about our football team, but very slow to share about our Lord. And so there's things that we can do that we can put on the tip of our tongue that help us to have those opportunities when the time is right. Um, you know, if you're someone who says, I'm not an evangelist, I get it. Like, I'm not necessarily either, but I'm called to be. And so I'll say things about the church that I go to to force myself into that conversation. Um, having a Bible is an incredible conversation starter. It's just not something you generally see. You can't, uh, you can't go to a coffee shop, pull a Bible out, and put it on the table without someone saying something. I mean, you can, but very commonly, when you have a Bible out on the table, it's a statement piece, and someone will say something. It's incredible, right? Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago and people still talk about him. I don't even know my great-great-grandfather's name. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked and the earth is still polarized over him. 1 John 1.10, which obviously we read a couple of weeks ago, says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this came on the heels of verse 5, where we read that there is no darkness in God at all. And that's the idea of holiness. God is completely different. It's not that God restrains the darkness in him. It's not that God restrains his hatred. It's not that God restrains his unrighteous anger in the ways that we do. Right? I mean, that's the very first thing that we start teaching children. We don't teach children math first. We don't even teach children to speak first. We teach them not to hurt others. Um, I remember, I go back and forth on which baby it was, but I think our second baby, when the second baby entered the house, the second baby wanted to squeeze the eyes of the first baby. Or no, the first baby wanted to squeeze the eyes of the second baby. And we had to say, be nice to the baby, right? So frequently that he would say, nice. He couldn't even speak right, right? You don't squeeze people on their eyes. Okay, this is we have to teach people this. We have to teach people to restrain themselves because restraint is better than teaching them to be perfect because they'll never be perfect ever. You will never be perfect. I will never be perfect. And so we have some discipline and some restraint, and that's good. Um, that's very good. 
Because when people don't, when people don't take on the discipline of applying restraint to their lives, we lock them up in cages, and sometimes forever. So, you know, if I know there's, we kind of have this feeling sometimes that when I'm found in Christ, everything then should come naturally to me. I should naturally desire to read my Bible, and if I don't want to, I shouldn't. I shouldn't discipline myself because that's not really Christianity. It should flow from me. That's not true. Spiritual disciplines are good things. They're good for us. They stop us from drifting. They're how we know the commandments of God, right? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't wake up every morning, slam my feet on the ground and say, man, let's spend two hours reading a Bible. I just want that today. I wish I did. I wish I was that person. I'm not. It takes effort. And I need to apply that effort. It's good for me because I need to not only be aware of Jesus's commandments, right? Not just aware of them with my mind, like I know them and I've memorized them, but I need to be supple towards them. I need to be freshly impacted by them. It's the word that lives. It divides like a two-edged sword, right? So think about a two-edged sword. I know the last time you had a sword fight was never, right? Two-edged sword, both sides of it cut both ways, That's what the word is described as, a two-edged sword that divides between the division of bone and marrow, of soul and spirit. Where is that? Don't know, but the word can plummet. And so I should desire to be in it, reading it, impacted by it. It's so important. You can't overstate how important it is to be reading. It keeps us safe. It's a living word. It doesn't return void. It always comes back. It returns for the purpose that it went out for. Just like hearing Jesus say, if you don't follow my commandments, you're not in me. That should, that should change something about us. Like We should say, well, I want to follow. I want to be in you. I want to follow your commandments. The word is the same way. If that word is everything I need to know for life, you'd think I'd have at least a passing interest in it. And, and that's what it says. It's everything we need for reproof, for doctrine, for training in righteousness, this is 100% of what you need. The bookstore shelf, when it's not the Bible section, is 0% of what this book says you need. But the first place we go is the bookstore. What those fancy authors who think they're cool because they're on Amazon have to say about things. When we abide in Christ, we learn his commandments and we start living like him, right? Just like the Dave Ramsey example. If I really believe, if I'm convicted that I should be out of debt and I read Dave Ramsey and I think that's the right way to do it, then my life will change because of that. And if it doesn't, this is the litmus test part, right? This is where Jesus is helpful with giving us this concept of if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not guilt to say, start loving me. It's an opportunity to inspect ourselves. Am I living his commandments? And living his commandments includes failing in them. I want you to be encouraged in that. Because failing in his commandments feels different as a believer who's abiding in him. Right. So when I'm spending time in the word and I'm praying and I go about my day and and I fail in some way that I know is sinful, I don't treat someone well. I don't react the way I wish I did. It feels different when I'm abiding in him, right? I'm 
I keep a shorter account. I realize that that happened. I realize that that's outside of his commandments. And I'm not crushed and broken because now he's sending me where the worm doesn't die. I'm freshly thankful that he is my advocate in front of the Father. I am freshly encouraged of how great that he is. And I am freshly encouraged to be a repentant person who trusts not myself, because look, I just failed, but who trusts Jesus even more. And says, I need to be more in prayer because I'm reacting in this way. And then tempers things about my life because of it. Sometimes we react in those ways because we've allowed ourselves to become so sinfully consumed with other things. We have a shorter fuse, right? Like, I don't know if you were like me, but as a kid, like, you know, you, you, you light a firework and it doesn't go off and you go pick it up and it's got this little fuse left. You don't go put it in the trash. You hit that bad boy. Light that fuse, but you better throw it quickly because you know what happens next. The thing pops and all of a sudden you have one last finger, right? And so our lives can be like that. When, when we give up so much of our time and our attention to things that don't enrich us, we don't necessarily act out the character and nature of God. For some of you, that means you need to eat lunch. Right? Like be an adult person who's aware that you're a jerk when you don't eat. So eat. Right? Like, like remember to eat. Or maybe for you, it's rest. Maybe if you don't get some number of hours per night, you're completely rude to everyone around you. Well, guess what? You should get some rest and not be that person around other people. Um, maybe you're like, well, I'm just a bristly person. And so you kind of make an excuse for yourself to be rude and horrible towards everyone. You should stop doing that, right? Stop making that excuse for yourself because Jesus commands it, right? Jesus commands us to be different in the world around us. He commands us to love people, even people that we would say are our enemies. We're supposed to love them in Christ. And so we have to live differently because he's in us. The very nature of God dwells within us. And so we should desire to be more and more like him. And scripture encourages us um, to grow over time. And, and I like that because um, I don't know what immediate Christian growth would be, right? To go from like a sinner to a spiritual giant all at one time, It'd probably break every relationship in your life. <laughs> Sanctification is a big word that describes a process that happens in the believer's life. Um, I remember talking to a pastor one time who had discipled someone, and this person became a believer, and somebody in the church came over to him and said, hey, um, that guy that, that you were working with and he's a believer, he curses when he prays. <laughs> yeah, that, sanctification could look like that, right? Um, sanctification can look like change over time, and that's okay. God gives us room for that. That's healthy. That's expected. When we get into a place and we get into an environment where we have to pretend that we're something that we're not, that's dangerous and that's not Jesus's church, right? That's something else. If we start lying to each other and pretending like we are nailing this Christian life, then we will fizzle out, burn up, and we will, spiritually, we will die. Um, and John will kind of talk about that a little later. And he says that people kind of followed for a while, but now they're not with the church anymore. Because why? They fell out of the faith? No, because they never were of the faith. And so a healthy perspective helps us stay close to God. That's the litmus test that Jesus gives them. And John just pulls on the same thread because it's the living word. Why would I do, why would I teach something contrary or different than what Jesus taught? What he taught was already good enough. And so John continues to keep in front of these little children 
his pastoral vision of living as a believer. Verse 4, and we'll read verse 3 before it. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now again, this is helpful, but this can be misconstrued. Because this can be misconstrued again to be legalism. If you say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But we know that John is not teaching legalism. He has already said, if you sin, Jesus is your advocate. He continually pops back to that. He's encouraging them to follow after what Jesus taught, as Jesus also encouraged his disciples to follow after what he taught, as a litmus test, right, to know who they are and where they are, but also as an opportunity to pay attention to the word and to work against drift and to be differentiated in the world around us. Because remember, our Christian walk isn't just about ourselves, right? It's about our fellow believers. That's one of the reasons that we come to church is to be an encouragement to one another. Right, so I've so frequently I've heard somebody say, "Well, I don't really need church. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty mature believer." Say, I'm going to immediately pull out the Uno Reversi card on you um, and ask if you even read your Bible because I don't think you do. If you think that you are a Lone Ranger Christian who's going to conquer this world and you've got it all nailed, you already need to return to like square one and let's start over actually reading your Bible again because you are missing it. You need each other. And if you're so darn prideful that you won't come down off of that, then I would say, okay, isn't that then even more reason for you to be in a church so everyone can benefit from you being such a spiritual giant? You're isolating yourself around from everyone else so that they can't benefit from how amazing you are? That's, again, not biblical, right? Because when we come around together, we encourage one another. And I don't just mean encourage one another by saying, oh, I really like your shoes. Those are nice shoes, Someone made you nice shoes and you bought them and that's great. By encouragement, I mean things like maybe, maybe someone's particularly down, right? And they're just like, oh, I'm just not doing well in my walk. And you say, well, listen, I want to remind you who you were a couple of years ago. Right now you're telling me you're down because you don't feel like your walk is good. Two years ago, you didn't even know what a walk was. You didn't care what that looked like and you mocked Christ. Look at that growth. You care now. You should be encouraged. That's evidence of Christ in you. And so we need community around us encouraging us. Sometimes it's maybe the opposite of that, right? Maybe, maybe you come in and you've been living in this pattern of sin that was part of your life before you became a believer. And you're just allowing it and allowing it and allowing it. And it snowballs, right? You know what I mean by the snowball, right? It starts out small, it rolls, rolls, gains size and speed and weight and inertia. And then before you know it, it's really hard to stop. And that's part of the problem with being in a dishonest church as well. A church where people have to pretend to look like they're good so that the giving stays up or so that people stay happy with them or so that they can continue to hold a position in the church. When you have that kind of a structure, it's bad for people. And the best example I, I have of that is something that I'm perfectly prone towards, which is ignoring things that need to be fixed, right? You come into the house, you flip the switch, you hear a little pop in there, and you think, eh, that happens, right? So you move on. Fast forward time, there's a smoldering pile on the ground because you have a very obvious electrical problem in your home. Our Christian lives are like that also. There's signs along the way. Yeah. People don't just go to the crazy end of the spectrum of sin. And I've got some stories 
that are wild that I've seen over my tenure as a believer, where you would say, man, that's some, that's some Jerry Springer stuff. Yeah, yep. Pastors that have fallen in huge ways. And it didn't start with a huge fall. It started with a small thing, and nobody told them. People should have known. I had a, um, a friend who was, was a pastor when I was not, and we used to meet for years. Every Friday, same time, same restaurant. Wait staff knew us, come in, do a Bible study. And he just kind of started to be a little different, right? And then said, you know, it's, we've been doing this for a while. I'm kind of tired. I'm like, eh, it's fair. I get it. It's early on a Friday morning, right? Could be tiresome. Let's take a break. A few months later, burned up whole pastoral ministry in some crazy, crazy uh, moral failings. And it's all about ignoring those little signs, not holding one another accountable. And not meaning I hold someone accountable because I'm better. I hold someone accountable because they want me to, because they know they're just a, a person, right? We're not God's holiness. We desire to reflect it. We enjoy seeing bits of it in us because we know it's not of us, right? Like when I get to see holiness come out of me, I'm really excited because that's evidence of Christ in me. That's not evidence of me in me. That's evidence of Christ in me. And so I get excited, right? It's like a gift. Um, the gift sometimes is, is kind of cool for the gift giver, even though they know what's inside. But the person receiving it is the one that's surprised. And so when God gifts us with something, whether it's some spiritual gift, something that we get to do in the church, it's not like, you know, um, you take a spiritual gifts inventory and you're a secretary and it says, your gift is administration. <laughs> well, of course it is. That's what you do for a living, right? A spiritual gift is something that God gives you and you do it and you're like, wow, I did that? That is evidence of God in me. That is God gifting his church to do all kinds of things, even things they shouldn't be able to do, right? You, you, you see um, in, in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire uh, over people's heads, right? You see the, the gift of uh, glossiacy, the gift of tongues is being given to the church so that they can communicate with all of these people who have come around to the same town. And what do people say? Oh, Look at those learned scholars who clearly have the gift of language. No, they say, who are these guys that are speaking in our dialects with our accents? It's evidence of God in them. And so whoever says, I know him, but doesn't follow his commandments, doesn't say they're wrong, says they're a liar, academically dishonest. And so the, the knowledge that's being cited here, it's like, like in our day, everybody... Everybody thinks they're grammarian. Have you noticed that? Everyone's grammarian. Oh, he used the wrong grammar. Like, okay, dude, you went to high school, all right? You went to a state college. I, you know, I get it. You're brilliant. But let's relax a little bit on the grammar. I see it on Facebook all the time. There, 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 right? Um, affect, affect, former, latter, all of these are things that I don't get. <laughs> I don't understand any of those things. Affect, affect, you tell me. I, don't, I just don't write the word. That's my solution, right? Former or latter, I don't even know. I just pretend like I know when everybody picks the one that was the latter, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So there's a, one of those things that's happening here that the, John's readers would have picked up on. Um, and the kind of knowledge that is being talked about 
in that fourth verse. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. This is not a knowledge that's academic knowledge. Whoever says, I know him, right? So we talk about salvation. Yeah, I know Christ. What does that mean? I mean, Satan knows Christ. Is he saved? No, it's a different kind of knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a, I've done things with Christ. Not like he's my homeboy and we play basketball. I sit down and I spend time and I read and I pray. And then I fail and I turn and I say, Jesus, you're so great. You're, you're, the, you're the savior for that this just ridiculous stuff that I do that I, I just, I lean towards and I want you to, to change that about me and in me. That's the knowledge of Christ that's being talked about. It's, it's experience. And that's so much better. And, you know, I used to say, gosh, I wish I lived in Old Testament times, or I wish I could have lived in the time when Jesus lived. No, I don't. Right? Like, let's be honest, I wouldn't have been one of the 12. Right? And I would have seen Jesus as he was passing through town one time. You know? I would have talked to the person who touched his robe. Or, like uh, uh, Jim said this morning about Zacchaeus, right? That was his last opportunity to get to Jesus. I thought that was really interesting. Climbing the tree, the wee little man, right? Remember when I was in Israel, I was looking for short people, wondering, are they Zacchaeus? This knowledge, gnosko, they would pick up on that usage. And remember, he's he's battling against this idea that there's some secret knowledge that gets you a little closer to Christ. And so he's, he's using these phrases, he's using these words on purpose to draw their mind to the concept that to know him experientially means that you're in him, right? So I experience Christ as I watch his life. And I live mine, and I say, ooh, I'm going to react like Jesus does. And then I don't. I have just experienced some Jesus. I've just experienced holiness, not academically, but as me, totally different than God. Right? Or maybe some victory. Right? Maybe somebody comes up and they snap at me. And I look up, and I remember Jesus, and I smile. And I say, that's all right. I love you anyway. And then I go, my gosh, that's so cool. That was Jesus in me. That was evidence of Jesus in me because the first thing that came to my mind was like three or four different cut downs. Like I was about to tear that person down. Then I remember Jesus because I read Jesus in here. I read that Jesus could not eat for 40 days and then remind the enemy of scripture when he suggested that he turn rocks into food. Um, I can't even skip lunch and be nice to someone who says something ridiculous. And so when I see those evidences in me, then maybe I think back to something like John or something like Jesus encouraging me that following after his commandments, having a knowledge of who Jesus is, is evidence of Christ in me. And that's encouraging. And another way to kind of understand it is is, is flowing in the other direction. So think of Matthew 7.23. And... Then I will declare to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that's Jesus now talking about knowledge in an experiential way. Jesus knows them, right? Um, We know that God knows every hair on our head. We know that he formed our inward parts when we were in the womb. Uh, We know that effectively he is the creator and the author and the sustainer of everything and that without him there would be nothing. So certainly Jesus knows people, He's talking about an experiential knowledge. Um, So he'll declare, depart from me. I never knew you, 
you worker of lawlessness. We didn't abide. You weren't in prayer. You weren't found in me. You weren't repentant. You followed after you. You didn't follow after me. And so there's another kind of knowledge, Oida, which is like Orida, the maker of wonderful tater tots and french fries. You see it in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a kind of a knowledge that's a head knowledge, right? Those are facts that you can follow. You ever know somebody that's like a sports person? Um, I'm forever blown away by those people because, you know, I refer to people as what's his name and what's her name or that guy, or I speak about things that have happened in the past and I can't even determine the season. But sports people can tell you who moved so many yards in a certain year, right? And then the real weird ones, like the baseball ones, can tell you all kinds of crazy facts, like how, how well someone does on left-handed pitchers when it's below 40 degrees. You think I'm joking? There's people like that. That's the kind of knowledge that we see in Hebrews 12, 17. It's not the knowledge that Jesus is talking about. Jesus doesn't ask us to know him in terms of facts and recalling facts. He asks us to know him in terms of his commandments, working to follow those commandments, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, being freshly reminded of who God is, and being encouraged to live the Christian life. He asks us to know him like that. That's abiding. And you're like, abiding? What is this word? Was it like 1950? What is abiding? Abiding is prayer. Abiding is devotion. Abiding is walking in Jesus's commandments. These are the things that we do when we're abiding. When I wake up in the morning and, and I spend some time in prayer, and then at some point during the day, I, I, I read scripture, I do some kind of a scripture reading, whatever that is. If you're plowing through huge chunks, if you're just reading a section, if you're thinking about it throughout the day, if you're pray, praying to God, if you're working to live like Christ, that's abiding. You're doing it. Right? There's, there's, there's nothing mystical. You don't have to burn sage in your house, right? You really don't. You don't, have to, you don't have to avoid certain kinds of foods. You want to abide in Christ, pray to Christ. Remember, Christ, pray. Give some time in devotion. So just a little bit of time that you set aside. And it can, I mean, it can be all, it can look like all kinds of things, you know? You can crank up some K-love, be positive and encouraging. You can sit there looking at your Bible, you know, whatever, whatever devotion time looks like for you. You can do your devotions while you're running or while you're working out, while you're driving to work. You can set aside time for it. And then walking in Jesus's commands, right? Being aware of what they are, first of all, which you have to get that from the Word. It's the only place you can find his commands. That's what abiding looks like, and that's what we're called to do. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this, we know we're in him. Now, that can feel strange to think about the love of God being perfected. Right? Well, was it imperfect before? Do I interact with God's love and make it somehow better? It's perfected in the same sense of, same sense, not in the exact same way, same sense, of Dave Ramsey's program, right? I perfect Dave Ramsey's program not when I go out and I buy the $10,000 Gator, two shotguns, and some Sears pants for you. It's perfected when I don't do that. I pay down my debt, and now I'm able to live differently in the world around me. It's perfected in that its end is reached, right? So the love of God in Christ in us is perfected 
as we experience it, as we walk it out, as we share it with the people around us, it's perfected because it has a target to act on. It's perfected because it's reciprocated. It's not just that God loves us, it's that we in turn then, because he first loved us, love him back. And because we love him, we follow Jesus' commandments. And because we follow Jesus' commandments, we live differently in the world around us. And because we live differently in the world around us, people see that. And when we tell them about why, they're interested sometimes. They're compelled. They want to hear because they see you living differently. That's perfected love of God because it, 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 it returns for the purpose that it went out. Whoever keeps his word. So that's John writing against this Gnosticism, right? John's saying, you come to know God and Christ when you work to keep his word, when you abide. Not when you live perfectly, not when you live sinlessly, not when you have some secret knowledge that lets you live different than other people, but when you rely on Christ. And reread the way it's written. But whoever keeps his word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. Um, you know, maybe you would think it would be different than that. Not that the outcome of keeping his word would be that the love of God is perfected, but that you would be sinless because you're keeping No. The one who keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Not that you live perfectly without sin, because again, you go back up, and John already dealt with that. He said, Jesus Christ is the payment when we fail. And so the aim is to live differently in the world around us, is to be obedient to Jesus' commandments, is to disciple, is to go, therefore, into all the world and tell them about God and to live differently and to have a platform to land that message on. Jesus in John 15, 9, it's a scene where there's a foot washing is taking place. Judas has left, and Jesus is giving this explanation of the, the vine and the true branches. Um, those who abide and live following his commandments, they seek after Jesus' kingdom goals, not their own. That's how you know you're of the vine. That fruit flows through you. If you're not of the vine, if you're not connected to the vine, its purposes don't flow through you. Your own purposes are what happens. You know, that even if you have a, you know, a ministry, if you will, there's plenty of charlatans out there. That's not new. It's been going on for years. People are just trying to fleece the flock to get money, to have a certain lifestyle. They're not of the vine. That fruit is not flowing from God through them. That is their own fruit. They're grafted on. Right, like I mean, spider plants. I think they're all dead now. I don't think they exist anymore. But they used to be everywhere, and you like couldn't kill them. It's like kudzu in the south. You know, you just pluck off a piece, plant it in the ground, and the thing grows again. But those that are of the vine are abiding, not like Judas. Judas was off already doing his own thing. Right, he's going to go get some money, sell Jesus out. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. It's one of the questions that we'll, maybe we ask a lot, maybe you ask a lot, maybe you've heard a lot, is how do I know I'm a believer? How did I know that I'm in him? How do I know that I'm saved? Abiding in Christ 
is, is what Jesus has said and what John has said. Being in prayer, being in devotion, walking in the commandments. Um, and, and you get to see God working out in you. He exposes some areas where you can grow. He you know, shares things from your word. The Spirit's our teacher in the word, right? So we, as we interact with the word, we are changed. It's not some secret knowledge. It's open knowledge. You just have to look in the Bible to find it. And then we get to abide. We get to walk like Christ. We get to know how Christ walked. Scripture records everything that we need in order to abide, everything that we need in order to imitate, everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we should abide in Christ in our attitude. We should abide in Christ in our deeds. We should abide in Christ in our devotion. We should abide in Christ in our prayer. And when we make those desires mark our day, even when we don't feel them, when we do these things anyway, we will find the love of God flows through us. And this is the fruit of repentant living. That's what John is talking to us about. And he's drawing from Jesus' own threads. God, we do thank you that your Son is the source of our salvation. Because we know that in your Son, Jesus, the fullness of your character flows. And by our working to imitate that, we get to experience successes and failures. And we know that that's okay because we have Christ who's our perfect payment. And so, God, I pray for us that you grow us as we perhaps are encouraged to abide as we study from the book of John, I pray that you would make us like that tightrope walker, not the one without the net, but the one who knows there's the perfected net and make us more bold as we desire to walk like your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.